Well, conflict and controversy is not just a part of our world. It was part of Jesus' world. He was um, certainly not someone who sought to be controversial, but he was. As we've been journeying through Matthew's gospel and watching Jesus' interaction with the Jewish religious leaders, there is a conflict that is growing just a little bit every second in its intensity. You know, Matthew's gospel is 28 chapters, and when you get to chapter 22, uh, two, almost three years of Jesus' life are covered in 21 chapters. When you get to chapter 21, it's like everything goes into slow motion as they enter into Jesus' very last week before his crucifixion. And so remember here the controversy that surrounded Jesus. At the beginning of the chapter, uh, Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It is one of the highest and holiest days of the Jewish year, and Jesus intentionally walks into Jerusalem like he owns the place because he does. And people praise him, yet this creates controversy with the religious leaders. Jesus immediately goes to the temple, and in the temple, he cleanses the temple out. He gets rid of the money changers and the people that are buying and selling and that have turned his father's house into a den of robbers. He also, uh, in the temple complex, heals those who are sick, again creating controversy with the religious leaders. He goes out of the town that evening and spends the night ostensibly with his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus and on his way back into the city the next morning, privately, not publicly, privately to his disciples, he curses an unfruitful fig tree. He goes back into the city and as we saw last week, they challenged Jesus' authority. We did not deputize you. By what authority are you cleansing the temple, healing, teaching? His authority was challenged. Finally, when we get to the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, at the very end of Matthew chapter 21, Jesus curses something else, but he doesn't do it privately like he did with the fig tree and his disciples. He curses the Jewish religious system, and Jesus says, I'm done. He makes a radical break with Judaism, and we have the opportunity to see how this conflict proceeds. Interestingly, this parable of the wedding banquet is one of only three parables that are repeated in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is the parable of the wedding banquet, followed by the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the sower. And so we'll be in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. Uh, the words will be on the screen. If you don't have your own copy of the scriptures, it'll be, it will be page 698 in the Pew Bible in front of you. But listen to how God's Word describes this increasing hostility <clears throat> in the nature of this conflict. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There is a man, a landowner, who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the grape harvest drew near, he sent his slaves to the farmers to collect his fruit. But the farmers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son, saying, They will respect my son. When the tenant farmers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance 
So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? The chief priests and the Pharisees said, He will completely destroy those terrible men, and he will lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his produce at the harvest. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This has come from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. There are several things that we see in this passage that I think are not just good for us as we construct our historical faith. They are good for us in application as we think about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the very first thing that we see in this uh, living story, this parable that Jesus tells, is an analogy between the landowner and God. God, in this story, is the landowner. And we see something really marvelous about this, this God that we love and that we serve, and it's this, that our God offers a meticulous providence. Now, that's not a word that you use every day, meticulous. Paying attention to detail, concerned about every portion of a subject. When we talk about God's meticulous providence, one of the easiest ways to illustrate this biblically would be the very fact that God cares about every insignificant sparrow that falls from the sky. It says there's there's not anything that happens that he doesn't know about. His eye is on the sparrow and he watches every bird that we, I don't know if it's a sparrow or a robin, you know, Uh, It's just a dead bird. God knows. Some of us make God's um, meticulous providence a little bit easier because it says that he knows how many hairs we have on our head. And so those of you that are gloriously balding are making God's job a little bit easier. There's few less hairs for him to care about. But the point is this. His providence and his care is meticulous. It is down to the details. How do you see this here? He's the one that made the vineyard. And did you hear the whole litany of verbs? He, he obviously, we don't even say this, he bought the land, he cleared out the rocks, and then he planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a wine press into it, built a watchtower. He did everything that was necessary to make this fruitful. There's no expectation that this was going to be a wasted venture. He did everything by the book. It's wonderful, these analogies that Jesus, is, Jesus uses for Uh, his father, for God. Last week when we talked about uh, the father who asked his son to go work in the vineyard, there was the one son who said, I will, and then didn't. And then there was one who said, I won't, but then he did. In that parable, God was a father. And we recognize that. We're instructed in our prayer life to address God as father. But this week, the predominant metaphor for God is that he is a landowner. Now, think about this here for a second, and not just the words, father, versus landowner, they communicate very different concepts. 
When you think of a father, you think of a family, and you should think of benevolence and care. When you think of a landowner, you should think stewardship. And here's the issue. When we talk about who God is, it is very important for us to be emphatic that God is both love and Lord. He is love as a father cares for his kids. But he is a Lord like a landowner who owns something and is owed something in that stewardship. I love this because inevitably... I don't know who it is, but I think I'm about to describe someone here in our sanctuary. Wives, you can volunteer your husbands if this is them. Is there anyone here who is Mr. Meticulous Yard Care Guy? Like, everything's got to be perfect. Like, you even want the pine straw combed so it's all facing north to south. You know, you're out there with scissors because you, you're going to measure how high your grass is and you want it to be exactly an inch and a half. And you know what kind of plants everything is and what kind of bugs get attracted to what plants and you have natural things for everything and your kids might not eat three square meals a day, but your yard sure does. I mean, you've got gauges and gadgets and gizmos to make sure your yard is just right because your care for it is meticulous. Your grass turns green before everybody else's does in in the uh, spring, and your grass is the last one to go brown in the winter. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're Mr. Meticulous Car Care Guy, where, you know, your car gets vacuumed out every day. You you take it to get waxed and polished every week because you want it to have the luster of the, just like it was when you pulled it off of the showroom floor. Friends, here's the deal. When we talk about meticulous care, it's usually about something as trivial as, as a hobby. Oh, there's a baseball card that I haven't quite collected yet? Let me be real serious about that. And friends, while God is in charge of all of the details of life, His concern is for things that really matter. His meticulous care and providence are to help us be in relationship with Him and to be fruitful. And yet our meticulous care is usually for things that nobody else will care about, and when we're dead and gone, it will be junk in someone's attic. God's meticulous providence is a beautiful thing, and it challenges us on the pitiful and tedious things that we spend our time on. Given all this meticulous action in preparing this vineyard, what's the natural expectation when he leases it out? That it will be bountiful in its harvest. That there will be so many grapes that are produced and so much wine that is overflowing that it's only natural that as part of the lease agreement, he expects his portion, his tithe his part of the agreement yet when we see what happens at harvest time as our focus shifts from this meticulous providential god to these tenant farmers we see that these tenant farmers representing israel and certainly representing all of humanity picture an incredible sinfulness an incredible sinfulness there is no violation of a lease agreement. It's not like the landowner has changed the terms and now wants 20% instead of 10%. No, the landowner is only doing what the tenant farmers have agreed to, that he has given them the land that he has prepared for them to steward, and then in due time, he's going to get his cut. Yet when he sends his servants, they are abused and murdered. And this, in spite of the fact that the landowner had given them a very great gift, a well developed and cared for land that they did not create. He made it 
Their job was to steward it. And in the parable of the wedding banquet, we are uh, given in fast-forward motion the entire history of the Old Testament. God sent his servants to his people, and they didn't even care to listen. You know, the prophet walks in the room, and you put your fingers in your ear and go, la, 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 la. Or you listen to it politely, because that's what you do when you go to church. There's no intention to actually hear what they said. Listen to this passage, 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 15. But Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time and time again because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they, they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising God's words, scoffing at God's prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no longer any remedy. Did you hear those last two words? Oh, well, I can be forgiven anytime I want. Not according to the Scriptures. It's quite possible for you to harden your heart enough that God's grace bounces off it like a bulletproof vest. It's quite possible for you to think that you are healthy when inside your body something is growing that will kill you. And there will come a time when a doctor will tell you there is no longer any remedy for you. It means death. And God says, this is what happened throughout the entire Old Testament. I sent my people to you and you mocked them, you ridiculed them, you didn't listen to them, and you have so stirred up my wrath that there is now no longer a remedy. This parable that Jesus is telling isn't anything but a summary of what has always happened and is happening even now. Why in the world would they do the things that they did to the servants of the master? Quite simply, they were motivated by greed. They already had a great chance for a good living. And so they kind of nefariously decided 90% is not enough for us. We want 100%. So we're going to keep the landowner's profit for ourselves. And then, after they beat up the servants, and then the sun shows up, they go from trying to keep all the profits to trying to acquire the land. And I don't know exactly what they were thinking about, but I imagine that they assumed that the sun's arrival meant that the landowner had died. And then if the sun was naturally the heir, if the sun is gone, then the property is ours. Very interesting. Here's the thing that's hard, and here's where part of the application comes. It's when terrible things happen, like have have happened this week, it is very easy for us to look down our noses at those people. Not to look in the mirror at ourselves, but to look out the window at everything else that is happening. Yet the testimony of the scriptures is unanimously and univocally that, be, that for all of us, before we repent and commit our lives to Christ, that we are enemies of God. We are not his friends. We are not neutral. We are his enemies. And our hatred of God is made real in our desires. We don't desire the things that God wants. We desire the things that we want. 
in our will. We do the things that we want to do, not the things that God wants us to do. In our affections, in our emotions, in our practice, in our actions, we don't do, we don't want, we don't desire the things that are above. We want and do and desire the things below that are what we want. And yet through all of this, friends, don't lose sight of the picture of God, His meticulous providence, our incredible sinfulness, and yet God as the landowner demonstrates a long-suffering that is breathtaking. I wouldn't happen to send a second set of servants. The second set of servants I would have sent would have been an army. It would not have been a second set of servants for you to abuse my people to kill or to maim or to ridicule. And the problem is the tendency for all of us, and even by my own statement, is the tendency is for us to only think of God as a judge. And we certainly see this towards the end of this passage. But as we listen to this, he sends a group, and then he sends another group that is even larger, and then maybe he's run out of servants, and he decides to send his son. Surely they will respect my son not according to the evidence that I've seen. Here we see the patient love of God, not a God that is so arbitrary and grouchy that he utters and thunders judgment at every little minor provocation. Kids, be quiet! No, that's not who he is. Long-suffering, patient, taking time, sending his son. And the reason that he is long-suffering is that he has a desire, not just from these people in this parable, but from us today, to see people who are called by his name to bear fruit. To bear fruit. He wants it. He desires it. He deserves it. And so, while we hear this story and we get outraged at the details, the question that comes down to us is, not how did these guys do at managing the vineyard, but how are you doing managing the vineyard that God has entrusted to you? We are so grateful for God's kindness, <clears throat> for his providence. Well, we see in this passage that there's more to the fuller picture that we have to understand. You see, as they continue to sin <clears throat> and commit egregious atrocities, there will come a time where we will recognize that God is just in his awful judgment and in his design for complete replacement. They will be judged and they will be replaced. And as Jesus concludes his parable, he asks a question to the religious leaders. What will the landowner do to these scoundrels? And they say... He will evict them and put in people who will produce the fruit and give him his cut. The leaders themselves admit the rightness of the punishment and they don't even realize that Jesus is using the story against them. Now they can't say, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, they've already spoken. And it's a beautiful parallel in the New Testament to what happens when Nathan confronts David about his adultery. And he tells the story, and David goes, this is a terrible story. That man must be held to account. And Nathan says, you are the man. I caught you. Jesus does the same thing here 
with the religious leaders. And you have to wonder, after Jesus just told the story about the two sons, which one obeyed? The one who said no and then went, or the one that said yes and then didn't go? He's talking about them. Are they just that gullible? Well, it could be that they didn't realize that Jesus was talking about them. Maybe he was just telling a story. It could be that the people who got really upset at the first parable kind of went to the back of the line, and now it's a new group of chief, chief priests and scribes that are now the ones hearing Jesus' words face to face. It could be that the answer to this story, what's the landowner going to do, is so obvious that Jesus had painted them into a corner where they couldn't really say anything but judgment. Or it could be, and this is what I think, that they were so ready for Jesus to condemn them because he was just adding wood onto the flame that was already burning in their heart against them to further heighten their condemnation and desire to destroy him. Come on, insult me one more time. Do you not know that I'm a chief priest? Bring it on, because you will hang for the words that you say. Regardless, their answer is correct. There will be punishment, and there will be replacement with faithful farmers. And this is not a popular doctrine for us to even affirm. We don't want to talk about it. But God's judgment should never be taken lightly, because God should not be taken lightly. And friends, if we have a God without justice, you no longer have the God of the Bible. You have a God of your own fiction. God, to be perfect, must not tolerate imperfection. And for a God who says in his word that he will punish sin, to allow it to go unpunished forever would be unjust for a person who is supposed to be just. The challenge here is that the religious leaders very clearly heard him. They had no intention to heed him. They were not convinced about who he was in his person. They did not believe that he was the Christ. And because they were not convinced of who he was, they were not convicted about what they planned to do. And what they planned to do was murder. Chapter 21, verse 43, I will submit to you, is one of the most important verses in all of the Gospel of Matthew. Each of the Gospel writers wrote to a particular audience. Matthew's audience was specifically to Jewish believers. And yet, in this gospel designed for Jewish believers, convincing people that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the prophesied One of God, we find 21, 43. Jesus himself saying, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. All you prophecy and eschatology types, you need to think about that verse. Jesus has said, we're done. The break is here. It's over. And it's given to a new nation. Specifically, Greece. No, I don't know. Britain. Britain's looking for some new partnerships now. Um, Who in the world is it? You know, who's this new nation? It's not a nation that flies any particular flag. It's not one of the nations that's going to show up in Rio de Janeiro for the Olympics. It is a nation that we don't think of as a nation. We call it by another name. It's called the church. And it's made up of people who trust in the blood of Christ, who are confessing Jews and confessing Gentiles, who no longer see these divides because what unites them in Christ is more important than what country they grew up in or who their mama is. What is most important about them is that they belong to Christ. 
And here's what he says about this nation that he will give his kingdom to. They will produce fruit. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This nation will produce its fruit. So if you find yourself a non-fruit-producing Christian, I would suggest to you that those words don't fit together in the same sentence. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you are connected to me, my life-giving power will flow through you. Friends, if you don't see fruit, you have to ask yourself the question, have I had the experience with God that I think I've had? Or have I just gone to church? This parable teaches the very painful truth, our fifth <clears throat> and final point, that Jesus will indeed either be our deliverer or our destroyer. That's not the picture of Jesus hanging up in your grandma's bathroom. You got hippie Jesus with the sheep around his neck, not destroying Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, not victorious Jesus riding on a horse instead of a donkey, but the Bible says he will either be our deliverer or he will be our destroyer. Like the farmers in the passage, they thought if they destroyed the sun, that they inherit it all, that life will be good. And in the same way, the religious leaders thought, if we can just get rid of this pesky backwoods preacher, life will be great. Let's get rid of the sun and we'll be free. But Jesus does something radical. When you read this this passage, you sit there and you go, all right, how does verse 42 through 46 fit with 33 through 40? Like, I get the parable about the vineyard, and then Jesus, like, when, they, when the leaders self-profess the condemnation that deserves to be meted out on the tenant farmers, Jesus turns around in verse 42 and goes, okay, so you think these guys need judged? Have you never read the Bible? Ask that to your Sunday school teacher next week. See how it goes. Have you never read the scriptures? And then he quotes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This has come from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Jesus has now turned this from a cute little story about maybe some kind of ethical teaching point to making it about him. It is not by mistake that Jesus says, hey, you know who the last guy that the landowner sends us? It's a son. And it killed him. Jesus says this four days, five days before he dies. He looks the religious leaders in the eye and he says, listen, you are the tenant farmers and I'm the son. I'm the last one that's coming to warn you. And they don't care. They don't care. They are going to arrest him. They are going to crucify him. But yet his death does not destroy him. How does death not destroy him? Because he's resurrected and he is transformed from this stone that is rejected to becoming the cornerstone. There is a building that's being built and they have all of this building material and they're looking for the right stone. And they go, ah, you know, this one, it's kind of cattywampus. This one's kind of crooked. This one's got a crack. This one's got a chunk missing out of it. So they throw it over to the discard pile. It's worthless. It's refuse. It's trash on a work site to be thrown into a dumpster and ingloriously disposed of. The same thing that happened to Jesus, crucified with criminals for a, no crime that was committed. 
And yet through his resurrection, he goes from being the rejected stone to being the cornerstone. Now for some of you who have study Bibles, you're going to see a little footnote there and it's going to direct you down to the really little, little bitty font down at the bottom. And it's going to ask you the question, is this a cornerstone? You know, the thing that you lay at the corner and then everything has got to be in line with it? Or is it the capstone, the thing that goes in a Roman arch and it's the last thing to go up top that holds it all together? It's a little bit of both. Look with me at verse 44. Here is the judgment that Jesus gives. And he says, whoever falls on this stone, you don't fall on stones that are over your head. You fall on stones that are under your feet. It's a cornerstone. So he says, whoever falls on this foundational stone, will be broken to pieces. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. It is a cornerstone. And here's, here's the thing. If you trip over the cornerstone of faith in Christ, the Christ who is king will one day crush you. He is the cornerstone for us who believe. But for those who do not believe, he is a capstone hanging by a thread dangling precariously over those who do not have faith. That's terrible news. If you don't trust in Christ, but for those who have trusted in Christ, and He has become our cornerstone, our foundation. We can't describe who we are apart from this rock that we have built our lives on, this cornerstone that determines everything, that every other stone in our life is only properly placed in accordance with its alignment with the cornerstone. For those who have trusted in Christ, we can rejoice because all judgment is avoided. That's good news. And not only that, but our life is lined up with the way that God wants it. We're not broken in the same way that we are apart from Christ. This speech of describing God as the cornerstone is so important that it occurs multiple times in the scriptures. I'm just going to read one passage. Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, there is a man that is healed by Peter. And the Jewish leaders are doing what they do best. They're opposing God's work. And it says, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he sought to reply to the Jewish leaders. Acts chapter 4, verse 10 through 12. Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, but he has become the cornerstone. And there is... Salvation in no one else. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Oprah Winfrey, not Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. There is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. We look at our parable. And God didn't merely send a servant to accomplish our redemption. He sent his son. And that son is the only way for people to be saved. We don't need new legislation. We don't need new leaders. 
We need people who trust in the name of the Lord our God. The amazing thing is, when that son was sent in the parable, I just have to happen to believe that he knows what happened to the other servants that got sent before him. And so did Christ. He knew of the faithful prophets that preached to stone walls. He knew of his faithful prophets that were sawn in half, quartered and killed in terrible ways. He was aware of what lie before him, and yet he came. For six months prior to his crucifixion, he warned his disciples. And even here in this passage, he looks his persecutors in the face and he says, I know your end game. This is your last chance. And they don't repent. Jesus was willing to go to such great lengths, not just to suffer and set an example, but to purchase people back for his Father. He was willing to go to great lengths to demonstrate God's great love. And there are two really important word pictures in this passage. You've seen them. I just want to spell them out here a little more explicitly. God has a desire for two things in every person's life here today. He desires fruit, and He desires a foundation. He desires fruit, and He desires a foundation. You see, anyone can claim to be bearing fruit, but the truth is the fruit that God desires is only possible by being built on the foundation that He has said is important. You know, to bear fruit without building on the foundation is like painting apples on a tree. They don't taste very good. And quite honestly, when you get up close, they're not apples at all. They're just red, blotchy leaves. They from a distance look like fruit, but they are no fruit at all. This is a challenge for us because there are some of us that the only thing that really matters in our life is whether we built on the foundation. So we can remember 30 years ago when we walked an aisle and we shook a hand and we prayed a prayer and I built on that foundation. But yet there's no concern for bearing fruit. The Bible doesn't let you have it that way. There are some of us that are so action-oriented and we see social injustices and we see needs and all we want to do is go out in the community and bear fruit and we don't care about what the foundation is. That's not real fruit. The Bible says foundation and fruit. That's what's important. And Jesus says emphatically, again, that the people to whom the kingdom will be given will most truly and indubitably bear the fruit that it needs. Jesus gave grace in the midst of this confrontation to the chief priests and scribes by telling them that he knew what they were doing. One last warning before they crossed the point of no return. And yet they were practically unrestrained in their desire to kill him. They were not restrained, as we might think, by the fear of God. The way the passage ends, they were restrained by the fear of man. The crowds thought of Jesus as a prophet, and so they did not act out their plans. So Jesus warns us too. Have you built on the right foundation? And is that foundation causing you to bear fruit? He warns us every week, Every day, constantly and consistently through His Word. Are you built on the right foundation? Have you trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you bearing fruit? We know that the fear of man kept the scribes and the Pharisees from producing the fruit that the kingdom of God deserved. What prevents you 
pray with me, please. Father, in our best moments, we will readily and joyfully confess that you are worth everything that we have, everything that we are. You own it all. The challenge for us is that those best moments happen really infrequently. And we think we deserve all. And we rob you of your glory. We don't bow our knee before you in humble service. And so this morning, Lord, one of the fruits that is born through your word is the fruit of repentance. There may be some here this morning that have run from you for years. And today's the day for that race to stop. For them to confess their sins and to come and find you as a most gracious and good Heavenly Father. There are many of us who for years have been built on the right foundation, but we seem to have lost the priority of bearing fruit as your word tells us to. God, it's appropriate for those of us in that situation to repent as well. To remember the great love that you shared, uh, that you expressed for us, and to go back to our first love. Father, I pray that you grant that to us. That as we think about building on the foundation and bearing the right kind of fruit, that you will be glorified in the repentance of your people. In Jesus' name we pray.